Father, we ask that you would be with us, Lord. Father, we ask that, um, God, would we not merely go through the motions of a service or a routine, Father, but would we encounter a real and living God? Would we see a picture painted of a Savior who is concerned with the affairs of man? And would we acknowledge the reality that if we say that Jesus is Lord, then that means that he has ownership over our lives. That when he speaks, he doesn't speak with a, a tone of making suggestions, but that when he speaks, he speaks with authority. He speaks with an authority that would require for us to respond in worship. And so I pray that today, God, would you use your um, servant, Father, would you use me in a way to clearly communicate and paint an accurate picture of who you are? Would people see you rightly and would they respond appropriately? Because, Father, we know that um, we can search all over, Lord, but, there's, but, but you are the only one. You're the only one who can meet all of our needs. And so I pray that, Father, would you meet us at that need this day? Be with us as we go and we ask these things in your son's most precious and holy name. Amen. For those that don't know me, my name is Richard. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Cornerstone. And um, about five years ago, um, I would say that my life was changed. Five years ago, my wife and I, we moved to a neighborhood a little north of here called Ashview Heights. And for me and my wife, most of our lives was spent um, around people who were fluent. My wife was uh, the daughter of a doctor, and I'm the son of an engineer. And so most of my upbringing was around people who either had money, pursuing money, um, or people that had the appearance of success. And so for me to, um, for my parents to have invested all of their time and their energy and their resources into helping ensure that though they grew up in the low-income neighborhoods in Detroit, Michigan, they wanted to ensure that I myself would never wind up back there. And so for me and for our family to move into the southwest side of Atlanta, um, we, it was a bit of a slap in the face to my family or to our families. You see, we believed all of the perceptions that come with this side of town, that it's the hood, that this is where the poor people live, that if, unless you can't um, achieve success in this life, that's where you wind up. We believe that. And so the thought of moving over here was uh, it produced fears. It produced these anxieties because we really didn't know what life would look like. We really had to step outside of our comfort zones and be put in a position to where discomfort would bring to the surface some of the, the darkness and the evil that was within our hearts. And that frightened us. God would have to expose some things in me in order for me to really understood, understand who he is. And so for a person whose entire life is built around our preferences, the things that we buy, the people that we associate with, it's easy to, it's a lot harder to be put in the positions where your preferences are stripped away from you. It's a lot harder to have to wrestle with, I'm surrounded by people that I really can't identify with. I'm not living next to the lawyer or the doctor or the business professional. No, my neighbors don't have jobs. No, my neighbors didn't graduate from college. No, my neighbors, I can't talk to them about uh, the, the, the things that I've become accustomed to because there's a, there's a gap there. And so for a life built around preferences, that's, that's very discomfortable. It's, it it inconveniences us, and it means that, man, is my picture or the way that I view people, is it actually okay? Is it is the American dream that's painted for us of the picture of success being the type of car that we drive and the home that we live in and the type of clothes that we wear, is that all that makes up human beings? If we're honest, all of us grew up with that dream. All of us in here believe that I know I'm going to be perceived a certain way unless I present myself as being successful. And so we understand how this works in the world. We understand how this works out there. But, but what I found was is that as I would invite people that we grew to love and people that we build relationships with, as I would invite them to my church, it was easier to get them to come and see what was going on. 
it was a lot harder to get them to come back. And some of that ownership can be on them, the insecurities, the shame that comes when I can't dress the same way as the people that I see. I don't talk the same way as those that are the overwhelming majority. But I think there's some ownership that we as Christians, we really got to acknowledge on our own. I think that we need to allow God's word to function as a mirror so that we can see what's wrong with us and hopefully provide a solution so that that never happens again. And so today what I want to talk about and what James is going to talk about is he's not dealing with the out there. He's dealing with right here. He's going to deal with you and I, those that profess to be Christians. And he's going to say and he's going to deal with under the umbrella of in James chapter one, as he concludes kind of telling us and helping us learn about how we can suffer well as Christians, how we are to think and how we are to speak. He climaxes his argument with a point of what sincere, genuine faith is and what worthless faith is. He's going to show us that sincere faith looks one way and worthless faith looks another. Because I can probably assume in this place that though we are filled to capacity, that there are a variety of people in this room. There are the genuine Christians who have been transformed in their hearts, that they know Jesus personally, and they're outwardly unashamed to profess it. Then there are those who just merely grew up in church all their life. They're really... um, They understand that as a good moral person, what I need to do is I need to go to church and I need to read the Bible. And there's a sense of a veneer like Christianity, cultural Christianity. And then there may be a third person in this room who you're like, man, I've never heard anything about Christianity. I may have thought, grew up thinking Christianity was the white man's religion. And I'm just here because my neighbor invited me and I like them. And so I'm here because of that. And so as we go through the text, what I want to appeal to our church cornerstone, specifically those who are the members of our family, what I want to appeal and what God's word is going to do today is he's going to uh, tell us and, and, and show us that I don't play favorites. And so as we move throughout this article, my prayer, and even now, I, I pray that if you've been sitting here and you feel virtually disconnected, you feel unmoved, you're kind of like, God, I don't know why I'm here. Would you pray even now that God would open and would soften your hearts? Don't dismiss yourself out of this story. Don't, don't think that, oh, he's not talking to me because the reality is God's talking to all of us. So let's go to our text today in James chapter 2. Verses 1 through 13, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. Yo, matter of fact, why don't you have my seat? While you say to the poor man, yo, you just stand right over there, bro. You just, matter of fact, we don't got a chair for you. You can just sit down right here on the floor next to my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you did not commit adultery but do 
murder, have you not become a transgressor of the law? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who shows no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. In today's text, what I hope to do is for is to draw our attention to three things. I think the first part of the text is going to draw our attention to how do we view people and how do we treat them on that basis. The second part, what he's going to do is he's going to draw our attention or shift our focus to peer into how does God treat people? How does he view people? What's his view? And then thirdly, I think that God is going to um, show us a better way. What is the life in the way that God desires for his people? And so to start off, we're going to look at our view. How, is, how do we naturally treat people based on our view of, the, of them? He starts with my brothers. My brothers. It's important for us not to glaze over this because it's going to set the tone for his argument. James is not writing to a group of strangers only. In one sense, these are people that he doesn't know, but in the other sense, he's writing to family. That brothers, if it's teased out, it literally means to be born from the same womb. And so he's not saying that I'm writing to a group of Christians that I consider my play brothers. You know those play play cousins you have? They're not really your blood, but you call them cousin because your family, your parents are close. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying that I'm literally identifying with you as if you were born from my, from my mother. And so he says, brothers, and then he tells them, look, don't show partiality. But why? Brothers, show no partiality. But then he goes into, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if any of y'all have done this, but there will be times where I'm in my neighborhood, I'm on my street working in my yard, and, and I'll see some kids who, you know, just went to McDonald's real quick. And so as they're walking by a street filled with trash cans all across the street, you'll see a kid throw a piece of, throw his entire bag of McDonald's on the floor. And so you'll ask the kid, hey, hey, bro, can you pick that up, please? There's a trash can literally right next to you. And guess what the kid says? You can't tell me what to do. You not my daddy, right? They don't respond with respect. Why? Because there's no relationship. They don't know me for nothing. But if I were to call that kid by name and say, hey, Jermaine, don't your mama live right down the street? Ain't her name Vicky, right? Okay, you need to pick up that trash. Guess how he's going to respond? It's going to be a lot different because that relationship informs the responsibility now. That relationship is the thing that's going to anchor my request of them. And so what James is going to do is, going to, is he's going to say, my brothers, look, don't show any partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the relationship that anchors the Christian? The relationship is that we belong to another. The relationship is that we belong to Jesus. And he's going to say, don't show partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But not only that, he's going to point to the responsibility We're not simply possessing something that we can sit on, put in our back pocket, and forget about. That's not what James is saying here. He's saying, as those who hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. To hold something, um, if if it's defined, means to, to continue on with something that began by another. The misconceptions of what it means to be Christian is that as long as I say a prayer and as long as I do my weekly responsibilities, that I'm good. I recited a prayer and I walked down the aisle to the altar and and Jesus is Lord and I'm good. And I can live the way that I want to and I can do my own thing. And God really doesn't inform me on how I should live. But that's not Christianity at all. That's mere religion. What he's saying here is that for the Christian, what's your, when, when you say that Jesus is Lord, let me stop there real quick. When I was reading this text, I would breeze over that word, Lord. I would say it so casually, Lord, Lord of glory. It didn't do nothing for me. And I had to check myself and say, man, why doesn't this word rock you? Why doesn't it hit you at the core and remind you of your place in eternity? When we say Lord, 
we are acknowledging that, God, I lay aside my will, that, God, I lay aside my ways, that, God, I'm submitting myself to someone far greater than me, that my life is not only my own, but my life belongs to another, that Jesus has purchased us. And so, therefore, if Jesus has purchased me, then that means that I can't make decisions without the counsel and integrity of God. That means that when it comes to where I live, when it comes to determining what school I go to, when it comes to determining what God, what job I take, that I got to go to somebody else because he knows so much more than I do. This is what it means to be, to call Jesus Lord. He's in control. I give you my life. But it's not just any Lord. He says the Lord of glory. This points us all the way back to Exodus 40 where Moses is at the tabernacle and the cloud of glory descends on the tabernacle and it fills the place so much so that Moses can't even come close. Moses is, is he can't come close to the glory of God because he knows that if he gets too close, it's going to cost him his life. This is what it means for Jesus to be Lord of glory. It means that the cloud of glory has descended and has indwelled a man and that man is Jesus Christ. And so what produce, what's produced in the heart of his people is that Jesus demands our reverence. That Jesus is the fullness of God in the package of a man. And so we say that he is Lord, the Lord of glory. The Olympics just passed. How many people watched the Olympics? Anybody? So the Olympics is that time of year. If you have no idea what the Olympics is, it's that time of year where every four years, every four years, the best athletes around the world come together to compete. And so these athletes have trained all their life really to lead up to a point to compete and to earn a gold medal. And so one of my favorite events at the Olympics is the 4x100 or the 4x400 uh, relays, right? Those are my favorites. And the reason why they're my favorites is because these are the only events in track where you have to compete as a team. It's not about you. But not only that is in the 4x100 or any relay, they give you this thing called a baton. And the reason it's not about you is because if you don't carry the baton and pass it off properly, it's over. That if you drop the baton, it don't matter if you beat everybody else. You're disqualified. And so as these runners are racing and as they carry the baton, as they hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, as they carry it to the finish line, they understand that there's something required for me in order to win the race. But not only that is, is that in the Olympics, other than other events that take place, other competitions. The Olympics really isn't the place where you boast in your own abilities. The Olympics isn't the place where we admire how great so-and-so is. At the core of the Olympic Games is this reality that as the one person, as the four people get that baton to the finish line, and as they prepare to receive their medal, that what doesn't happen is that the officials say, hey, bro, what's y'all's favorite songs, right? What's y'all favorite music so we can recognize y'all? No, what he said, what they say is what, as they hold their medals and as they stand there, they play the national anthem. They say that regardless of, of all of your efforts and all of your energies, what's most important right now is that we, they were for the purpose of a greater kingdom. They were the purpose of representing something bigger than themselves. And so for us as the Christians, we hold the baton and we look for the, the, the country, we look for our citizenship to inform the way that we live. However, we don't do it for our own glory, but we do it for somebody far greater. That's who we represent as Christians. We represent a God and we represent his kingdom. James says, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? But why? Why, James? 
Why should I not show partiality? I think he gives us insight onto the reasons why. Track down with me. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Every Sunday we gather here to worship. As I look around the room, I see people from all different backgrounds, all different ways of life. And the scenario that's painted is a worship service is going on, a gathering where Christians come to worship, and two different types of people walk through the door. You got the one person, wealthy, successful, probably got a couple different degrees, looking flashy, dipped out. Then you got the second person, clearly has been wearing clothes probably for the last few days, can't, can't, can't afford to shop at any designer, any desired places and may have gotten their clothes from a donation drive of that sort. And he's, and he wants us to see how the differences between our interactions to the first one. It's how you doing, sir? Welcome to Cornerstone Church. So glad that you're here. Tell me about yourself. Can I get your number afterwards so we can connect and maybe grab a bite to eat? But to the second one, he's like, I mean, let me be real. We're in the South, right? So we know how to act. And so the difference between the South and the North isn't that there's this heart change or that the Northern peoples are, are more, more moral than those in the South. The difference is, is that in the North, they'll just tell you about yourself. In the South, we can pretend enough to smile on your face and act like we're interested but then in the back of our minds, we're thinking, I can't wait to leave this person. I can't wait to get to, to I can't wait and we'll do it with a smile. So I want to speak to our church because we're, most of us are Southerners in here. Or at least most of us have lived in the South long enough to know the game, right? To the other one, probably with a smile, they said, you, how you doing? Yeah, you probably should go sit over there. Or, man, you know what? We don't. We just don't got no more seats. Sorry, you can stand in the corner back there. The attention shouldn't necessarily be on the action. What we should focus on is the type of attention that we gave. So, one, there's a curiosity. There's an inquisitiveness. I view you as valuable, and therefore, you're interesting to me. But not only that is, I think you're successive, and if I get close enough to you, maybe that, that, success, that success can rub right up on me. You have something to offer. But to the other, you say, man, I, you're doing worse than I am. I don't really think that you have anything to offer me, so I'm going to do enough, just enough to ease my consciences. But then after that, I'm done with you. You're not interesting enough for me to even view you as a person that I would desire to get to know. Harsh words. This is what James is alluding to, but he doesn't point at them and tell them this is what you're doing. He allows them to figure it out for themselves. I think all of us, if we were to stop and we were to assess our interactions, I think that we all could realize that we're guilty of this. That oftentimes we don't have enough time for those who we see as less valuable because um, we got to make time or spend our energies on those that can help us come up. And so this is what James is pointing to. And he says that because of the way you view people, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We, we learned in school that we shouldn't judge a book by its cover. How many of y'all are in school or your parents? Y'all heard that, right? We shouldn't judge a book by its cover. For some strange region, our culture is built off of judging books by a cover. Isn't that what it is about? That the way you portray yourself is how is the actual reality of who you are. 
And so all we base our focus on is what a person looks, what color of skin they are, how much money they make, how eloquent and articulate are they, have they read all the books that my Christian stream demands that you read, all of these, these extras. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? I think James pokes at the pride that we all have in our hearts. The pride that shows its ugly face when it comes to our interactions with people. That as we lean towards our preferences, what we'll find is that our preferences can easily become our prejudices. And so he shows that two things that they were doing was instead of letting God inform the way that they were to live their lives, they began to talk amongst themselves. They began to look to one another to inform, how should I interact with that person, James? It's a scary place to be in when your social circles, in times of real need, you go to somebody else to get counsel than than first going to God's word. You go to somebody else to get counsel knowing they ain't going to tell you the truth. Knowing that it's going to be a, yeah, girl, I know. Oh, yeah, bro, I know. I do the same thing. Instead of graciously reminding us of, brother, I understand. However, we got to go back to what God has to say because your feelings don't matter. God informs the way that we should view people, not one another. But then he shows us something different here. He says, and you became judges with evil thoughts. This is, for us, this is stepping out from under the grace and the mercy that has been extended to us, forgetting who we are in Christ, that we were far and distant away from God, and then becoming big-headed enough to think that, God, I've been doing this thing long enough. I think I'm good. I think I'm good, God. I know the right things to say. I've read enough books. I'm a leader in the church, and so I'm going to step out from over there, and I'm going to sit right here. I'm going to exalt myself over those who ain't, as I think, as good as me. I'm going to make determinations of what I think is right in my own mind rather than allowing you to inform how I should view and treat people. Judges with evil thoughts. I'm the oldest child, and so for me, there were time, times in my family's life where my parents just had to get out. So me being the oldest of uh, three siblings, I got two younger sisters, um, there were times when my parents would leave and they would say to my sisters, uh, okay, y'all, y'all brother's in charge. And so they would give me this sense of power and authority. And as me, as a 10, 11-year-old kid, the, the power... The power that I could tell my sisters what to do. And so I knew what was required of me, but the moment my parents left that door, I knew all the chores that we had to do together, and I knew what was... But what I would do is, oh, it's time to play video games, right? Y'all know y'all got chores to do, right? Play my game. Hey, bring me a sandwich while you at it. I tasted an authority that really didn't... I didn't deserve, I didn't really, um, I I should have never had, and I tasted of that, and I was an evil boss. I was an evil big brother. Everything that I did was for my own satisfaction, my own convenience. And so what James is pointing to is that, man, like, Christians, my brothers, you've, you've gotten out of pocket. You're making distinctions among yourselves, and you're becoming judges. God never meant for you to step into that place. And you're not judging justly. You're doing it with evil thoughts. If we were to pause for a moment and just to think back of the number of times where we've stepped out of pocket. We've gone beside ourselves. Well, we start to to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. James is exposing that our view and our treatment of people is really no different than the world's. It's one thing to experience that out there. It's another thing for people who are desperately seeking 
to hear from God, to come into our gatherings and to be treated like second scary citizens. This is how we view and we treat others. We look to ourselves. We don't treat them fairly. But enough with our view. What's important is what, how does God view things? How does God treat others? And so in verses 5 through 7, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called my name? In a couple months, the NBA season is going to start. And yes, Trip, I'm getting you back for last week. The NBA season is going to start, and um, after the Cavaliers won the national championship, I just want to just bring you all to speed. The Cavaliers won the national championship. <laughs> Coming back from a 3-0 deficit. That's not important. The Cavaliers, during this season, it's about Jesus. After the NBA championship is over, there's this period of time called free agency. And during the free agency, um, it's almost as exciting as the NBA playoffs because it's during this free agency that the big names can either decide to stay, put where they are, or they can go to another team. And so this season, the fuss that was made by some of our pastors here at this church that shall remain nameless, John and Tripp, uh, the (laughs) the fuss that was made was the Warriors, probably one of the teams in the NBA who have the most talent across the board. They pick up this player called Kevin Durant. They pick up this player called Kevin Durant, one of the best players in the league, right? And so what's so exhilarating for these Warrior fans is they think that because they add more talent, that that makes them a better team. However, the Cleveland Cavaliers, if you were to watch them, they've been a little less noticeable. The Cleveland Cavaliers have been picking up a few pieces here and a few pieces there. Some no-name guys that play their position well. And so when it comes time to the end of the spring, what's going to happen is that the Cleveland Cavaliers are going to win again. And and nobody's going to care that they got Kevin Durant, right? Nobody's going to care. Why? Because... The Cleveland Cavaliers, and I'm going to bring it back to Jesus. I am, I am. You got to get to, let me get to, my, get to my point. The Cavaliers weren't, for them, it wasn't about getting all the best talent. That for the Cavaliers, they had the best player in the league, and all they needed to do was surround him with a bunch of people who had no names but could play the position well, right? And so for us as Christians, we need to understand that this is how God chooses his team. It ain't about how much talent you have. Every single one of us are a bunch of role players, a bunch of no names who we all follow the lead of the greatest player in the league, Jesus Christ. That's what we do. I told you I was going to bring it back to Jesus. I told you. Listen, y'all. God chooses his team God chooses his team like that. Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, for he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low in the dis- low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God does not choose people on the basis of how impressive they are. God chooses people to put on display how impressive his mercy is towards us. That's what this God does. He says, I know you ain't nothing. I know you you are impressive. I know those things. That's not why I chose you. I chose you because I'm good. Because I want you to taste 
something that you could never earn, something you could never get on your own. I want you to taste my grace, taste my mercy. Don't we desperately need to, need to be reminded of this? Don't we desper- desperately need to hear this over and over, over again, that it doesn't matter how much you learn, it doesn't matter how much you know, it doesn't matter how much you accomplish, that you in God's eyes are still viewed as the poor of this world. You're not impressive to God. There's a danger for us if we get to a place where we think that the gospel was only the entry point for our salvation and not the sustainer of it. It's a danger for us to think that we've somehow understood the gospel enough to where we no longer need it and not realize that in all actuality we need it moment by moment by moment. I need to remind myself of who I am. I need to remind myself of my brokenness. I need to remind myself of what Jesus did for me. That's what it means to be Christian. That's why God gave us the good news. So for the poor, what the gospel now does is it says, we want to exalt you, brother. Boast in your exaltation. What God has done for you and what he's given you is eternal riches in the life to come. So regardless of how circumstances change or not, there's an inheritance for you. And for the rich... For the, the, the person who's successful in all the ways the world says they should measure success. For them, he says, the gospel brings you down. It humiliates you. It reminds you of your need. It reminds you that none of that really matters. That's not what your identity is in. Don't place your identity there. In the same way schools to solve the problem of preferences becoming prejudices, In order to equalize the gap between the rich and the poor, they incorporated this thing called a uniform policy. That way that the wicked hearts of kids couldn't boast in the type of shoes that they wore or what their parents could afford and then pick on those who couldn't do the same. And so as an equalizer, they say, we're just going to make everybody equal and you're going to wear the same things. And all of us were kids at one point in time. And so we all know. Though I can't pick on your clothes, I'll find something to pick on you about. The wickedness of our hearts, even at a young age. For kids to think that they're better when they didn't even work to earn the clothes that are on their back. Don't we do the same thing? Don't we take ownership of gifts, intellect? articulation, our homes. Don't we do all that same thing and begin to look down on the person that doesn't have what we have as if our efforts got us those things, as if those things didn't pass through the fingertips of our God who gives good and perfect gifts to those who are his. We're prideful. God help us. God views both rich, poor, white, black, yellow, red, um, business professional, homeless individual. He views us the same. That at the cross, your riches fall to the side. At the cross, what you didn't have doesn't matter. We're equal. We all need a savior. He sheds light on the depths of our evil, the depths of our hardened hearts, by not just telling us about how we dishonor a poor man, but he tells us that are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into the courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the holy, uh, the honorable name by which you were called? We can put so much energy in people who have the appearance of success. But yet, if we were to measure their character and their affections to Jesus, we would find that though they have all of the world's goods, their hearts are far away from God. 
he's telling us, brothers, be careful about budding up against the one in the world who you think can provide you with an ultimate solution for what you're lacking. These Christians were suffering. These Christians were experiencing persecution. And so when they saw the rich man through the door, they saw dollar signs. They saw a solution to their, an escape to their problems. They said, these rich rulers who are in control of things, if I can get cool with them, maybe they can provide relief to what I desperately want so badly. Comfort, security, and ease of pain. He says, you're more concerned about butting up towards them than you are the one who actually loves me, the one who's actually my brother, the one who doesn't blaspheme me but praises me and lifts his hands up high in the same way you do on your Sunday gatherings, the one that worships the same God as you. You're more concerned about them than you are your lonely brother. People-pleasing. The desire to do anything and everything possible to gain the acceptance of another. God does not view people like us. He's not impressed by our achievements or our accomplishments. At the end of the day, we all, rich or poor, black or white, we all kneel at the foot of the cross. And lastly, he shifts the focus again to a better way. What does God have to offer us? He's telling us not to show partiality. He's showing us how he views people. But what is he inviting us into? As a parent, one of the hardest things to do is to discipline your kids. There's this something about putting your hand on the child that you love that hurts you. And as a kid, I didn't get this. As a kid, my parents would pull out the belt and they would say something before they made that swing. And they would say, son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And you just in your mind, because you can't show what you're thinking on your face. But in your mind, you're like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I'm the one that's going to have welts on my behind, not you. But any good parent knows that if I were to spare these temporary consequences, if I were to spare this heartache right now, then I wouldn't be loving you. We discipline and parents discipline out of love, though the momentary consequences are painful. It's an invitation to say, son, I have to discipline you, but you're going to have greater joy because of it. Because if you obey me now... You can really experience me as as uh, the father and not the disciplinarian. If you obey me, you can have this joy of experiencing me in a way that doesn't create friction. And so, God, though the weight of these this text bears heavy. Please hear me is that God reveals things about you and me for our benefit and our good. Regardless of how hard he is or how hard it is, a doctor would be wicked if we went to the office for a blood test and he knew we had cancer. But to spare our feelings, he told us all as well. Have a good day. He ends with this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you murder... You have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy 
triumphs over judgment. We started our time with how James was going to create this umbrella for us. What is genuine faith? What is phony faith? What is pure faith? And what is worthless faith? And so as he circles back around the track towards the finish line, he's going to bring it home for us. And he's going to point us to um, the reality that what God is requiring from us for those that are serious about the love that we have for Jesus, what he's saying is the measure by which we can assess our spiritual health is found in the way that we love the least. It's easy to love pretty people. It's easy to love polished people. It's a lot harder to love people who aren't like us. People who haven't been privileged to all of the luxuries that we, we have, our education, where we grew up, our edu- all those different things. And so he's saying, what I want you to get is that the royal law is that Though he doesn't emphasize this, to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength and soul. But what he emphasizes is how that impacts relationships. And so he says to love thy neighbor as thyself. If you do these things, praise God. This isn't a message with no celebration. I'm thankful to have a church where I can look out into the crowd and I can see people that I can celebrate because they do this. People who can testify to, I used to look at people this way. I used to treat people that way. But now because God has gotten a hold of my soul, I treat and I view people in the way that God treats view people. We should celebrate that, y'all. James is saying this, there's, there's worthy, this is worthy of celebration. There's love in your gathering. But he also says that, to summary for time, what he's pointing to is the heart that hears something like this and begins to make excuses. The heart that hears the challenge and is just like, man, I know you're talking about partiality, but I'm good in these ways. I ain't killed nobody. I ain't stolen nothing today. And he's saying, this is how we measure where our heart is. When we begin to deflect our responsibility as those that hold the faith and we deflect towards things that really aren't related to what I'm talking about. And then not only that is he's saying that if you do love your neighbor as yourself, you do good. Praise God. But if you have in your heart this inclination to lean towards deflecting things, then he says, be careful because your understanding is wrong. Yes, you may not commit adultery. But you murder. If you've done but one of those things, you're guilty of them all. So the issue at hand is I want you to take your eyes off of what you don't do or what you do do. And I want to draw our attention to what the Christian has the opportunity to do when we hear hard things and our hearts are convicted is that we can respond with repentance. We can freely confess our sins because we know God Here's our confessions and what he offers is forgiveness. That's what the God that we have does. And so the last command that he gives is to so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. Those who have been made free speak and act this way for judgment without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Let me backtrack. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. The better way for us as Christians is to not forget our place and act as though we're better than those who don't have what we have. The place of the Christian is to say it's to understand that mercy, mercy is so much better than judgment. That what God extends to me every day that you wake up every morning, he says that there are brand new mercies waiting for you. That before you open your eyelids at the front door are mercy upon mercy upon mercy and they're waiting for you and you aren't even aware of your great need. 
And so for the Christian who has experienced this forgiveness, who has tasted of God's mercy for us not to then in turn extend it to someone else. Y'all fill in the blank. We have tasted from the ultimate source of God not giving to us what we deserve. What so? He says that mercy triumphs over judgment. What's impressive to me is for us to extend to others the very thing that we need desperately ourselves. Would you join me in prayer? Father, um, for me to read this text, it produces so many emotions, some of gratitude and celebration, but also some of concern. I, I stand up here not as one who is not guilty of these very things, but one who recognizes my a greater need for more love in my heart a greater need to continue to learn and extend myself beyond my comfort zone in order to get to know people who aren't like me, who I find it tough to relate to. But yet, you, Lord, say of them that they are yours, that they love you, and that you paid the ultimate price for them to die for their sins in the same way you did for us. And so I pray that as a church, Father, would we respond with confession, respond with an acknowledgement of where we are right now, and would we encourage one another to continue to strive to view people the way that God views people and to treat them the way that he's treated us. Be with us through the rest of our service with these Would your word echo within our hearts? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.